When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hi everyone, this is Pranay Bonagiri, one of your ITB hosts. Today I'm hosting the Pulmonology Step 1 Study Smarter series episode. To help review this incredible organ system, I have Dr. Raj Dasgupta with me. So Dr. Raj is a quadruple board-certified doctor in internal medicine, pulmonology, critical care, and sleep medicine. He's the program director for IM at USC and the associate program director for the Sleep Medicine Fellowship. His pride and joy, though, is teaching. He has been teaching USMLE Step 1, 2, and 3 for 20 years. He's extremely passionate about his book series, Beyond the Pearls, which covers board review topics for medical students and residents alike. So clearly, Dr. Raj, you've done a lot of stuff on the academic side of medicine. You know, when we previously talked, you told me you like to talk about yourself. So is there anything else you want to add to your bio? (laughs) Uh, You know, Pranay, um, I think you summarized it really well there. And, you know, anything that helps out students, anything that makes them, you know, take it to the next level on their board exams or shelves, I'm in. And that's why when you gave me this opportunity to do your podcast about, you know, what are the things people should know and how should you approach a question for step one? I, I just couldn't say no. I just couldn't. So I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. And I appreciate you being here. Pranay, give me that first question. I'm ready to go. All right. So for question number one, we have a 20-year-old woman with a past medical history of asthma who comes to her physician for review. She's currently using salbutamol, 100 micrograms as needed, with beclomethazone dipropionate, 400 micrograms twice a day. Despite this, she has a frequent exacerbations and recently acquired a course of oral steroids. Which of the following is the next step in management? Is it A, to add a leukotriene receptor antagonist, B, to add teotropium, C, add salmeterol, or D, to stop the beclomethazone and start fluticasone? So take it away, Dr. Raj. <laughs> All right. So number one, asthma, 20,000 star high yield for the board exams, whether it's going to be step one or going all the way to step three. So when we talk about asthma, you know, I got to tell you, it's a hot topic. Why? Is because these allergists are trying to steal asthma away from me clinically because asthma's moved away from just, hey, here's a little inhaler, here's your albuterol, here's your inhaled steroid. And it's really going to what we call biologics. And I got to tell you, many doctors shy away anytime you start talking about the biologics. 
And when we talk about biologics, you know what you have to do? You got to talk about immunology. And what does everyone hate for the board exams? Immunology. You know what I'm saying? So let me take a step back and just say, when we talk about asthma, I characterize them in two main categories for the board exams. Number one, is it extrinsic asthma? Another word for extrinsic is allergic asthma. Is it atopic asthma? And that, my friends, is 90% of all asthma is allergic. And when I do a physical exam and a history, do you have eczema? Do you have rhinitis? Do you have conjunctivitis? Do you own Fluffy the cat? You know, these are the questions I ask. If it's not going to be allergic, the other side is non-allergic, otherwise known as intrinsic asthma. And this is the one that's not associated with allergies. You know, maybe you're on medications that make your asthma worse, like beta blockers. Maybe it's perfumes. Maybe it's smoke. Maybe it's the cold weather. Remember, it's exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. So these are another type. So on boards, what are they going to focus on the most common? It's going to be the allergic asthma. And when we talk about allergic asthma, well, you got to ask some USMLE complex type questions. So, Pranay, you didn't really pay for this, but I'm going I'm to put you on the spot. When we talk about asthma, especially allergic asthma, what is the main antigen presenting cell in the lung in asthmatics? I would think eosinophils or mast cells. Uh, you know what, Pranay, that's why this, we're, we have this thing together because everyone always says mast cells. Now, do mast cells present antigen? Oh, no. They don't what do mast cells do? They release what, everyone? Say it. The histamine. histamine and tryptase. Very good. And eosinophils, very important cell when we talk about asthma, especially allergic asthma, but they're not presenting no antigen. Yeah. The answer, everyone, and I know you're listening very carefully, is macrophages. And you know, you have many macrophages in the lung. You have many macrophages where in the alveoli. You know, anytime we talk about immunology, you take the antigen and you present it to the immune system. And that's why when we talk about immunology, there's the innate immune system and the adaptive. And the innate immune system always means things that in your body that are in contact with the environment. So of course, everyone always thinks skin and stomach acid, but it's your lungs. We're in contact with the environment. So you got to know about these macrophages presenting the antigen. But if I were to switch the question on the USMLE and say, what is the inflammatory in cell involved in asthmatics? Pranay, what would you say? The, yeah, then I would have to go with mast cell, I would think. You or- would think. But once again, mast cells only do one thing. They release what? Histamine, uh, histamine. and tryptase. So, yeah. So you're trying to get yeah. at neutrophils, maybe? God bless the neutrophil. God bless him. But the answer is eosinophil. And so that's why, you know, I have already given all my listeners two of the biggest pearls for the board exams. When we talk about asthma, the inflammatory cell involved in asthmatics is eosinophils. The antigen-presenting cell are going to be macrophages. And these are important because when we talk about these biologics that we use for allergic extrinsic asthma, what do you think they're going to be attacking? Eosinophils. So when we talk about asthma in itself, remember that asthma can be a clinical diagnosis. If you want to be very objective, how do you do that? We do something called spirometry. Asthma historically is going to be an obstructive lung disease. And the key thing about spirometry, I do with what's called a bronchodilator response. I see if they have that bronchial hyperreactivity. They get that robust improvement in what we call the forced expiratory volume in one second or the forced vital capacity. 
then let's say I can't make the diagnosis based on the history or with some simple spirometry. Maybe I need to do challenge testing, you know, and the one that always jumps to everyone's mind is something like a, a methacholine challenge, you know, and that's something that's going to be, you know, very helpful, not when it's positive, but when it's negative, because it's going to be really, really good to rule out asthma because it has a high uh, negative predictive value. But when we talk about asthma in itself, of course, the basics are always going to be lifestyle modifications first. You got to get rid of Fluffy the cat. I'm sorry. You just got to. You got to make sure you don't have pet dander all over your house. So that's always going to be the first answer. Then when we talk about the mainstay treatment of asthma, it's always going to be pharmacologically inhaled corticosteroids. You take them inhaled. And I throw, everyone wants me to say step up and step down, which is true. You start off with a lower dose and you work your way up. And if you're doing good, you can work your way down. That is correct. And after you are on an inhaled corticosteroid and you're still having symptoms, well, then we add a long-acting beta agonist. Everyone calls that a LABA. And then after, uh, if you're still having symptoms after you're on an inhaled corticosteroid plus a, a LABA, well, you have many, many choices to go for. You know, you could do things like a leukotriene inhibitor like Monte Lucast. You could add a LAMA, which is a inhaled anticholinergic. Or you could be a category for advanced medications, which we call biologics. And when we talk about these biologics, when we talk about extrinsic allergic asthma, well, they're associated, these individuals, with elevated IgE levels. And there are medications that actually will, they're injectable, that will block IgE from attaching to what? To your favorite mast cells. You love a mast cell. You know, it's your favorite. And when they hit those mast cells, they degranulate and release that histamine. There are definitely going to be uh, biologics that will attack interleukins, such as interleukin-5, such as interleukin-4 and 13. And all those interleukins are going to be activating what? Eosinophils. And what do eosinophils cause? Inflammation. In who? Asthmatics. But you don't want to go to these biologics, which are injectable, until you actually use common, easy things first, until you go through lifestyle modifications first. So asthma. Pranay, there's not enough time in this podcast for me to like go off on asthma because as you can tell, I'm ready. But going back to your question, let's just kind of break it down together. So an asthma, an asthmatic comes in and is taking uh, butamol, you know, and I got to tell you, that's not salmeterol. Everyone's like, what is this drug? And salbutamol is actually just like albuterol. It's a short-acting beta agonist. So anytime you have what we call mild intermittent asthma, sure, lifestyle modifications, short-acting beta agonists, and use it as needed. And this is also, this patient is taking bethamexasone, uh, 400 micrograms twice daily. That goes by the brand name QVAR. But so just by being on a short-acting beta agonist and an inhaled corticosteroid, we call that mild, persistent asthma. And now that the patient's having uh, symptoms, despite being on an inhaled corticosteroid, I kind of gave away the answer already. So a leukotriene inhibitor, well, that's going to be Singulaire, which we call generic name Monte Lucast. I don't think that's going to be the right answer right there, according to what I said. Adding a LAMA, teotropium, a long-acting anticholinergic, goes by the brand name Spireva. Not yet. D, stop the steroid and start fluticasone. Well, that's just switching one steroid that's inhaled to another. Not really going to make much sense if everyone's paying attention just a little bit. What do we say we add when you have moderate persistent asthma to the inhaled corticosteroid? A LABA. So in this case, what we're going to do is add salmeterol. So there are many LABA, many, many 
inhaled corticosteroid LAMA combos out there, or LABA combos out there, such as Advair, that's a brand name, Simbacort, that's a brand name, Dulera, that's a brand name, Riolipta. We can go all day with these. So all these are going to be combinations of inhaled corticosteroids and LABAs. And that's the answer. The answer here is going to be C. What do you think of that answer? Are you are you are you pretty impressed? I am very impressed. Yes, the spot on. And thank you for that awesome review of asthma. Did you see that, dude? And tell the audience, dude. I just I just winged that. I didn't yeah, even like off the top prepare, of the dude. Very well put together. <laughs> All, right. All right. So moving on to question two. So we have a 62 year old man who's presenting with significant shortness of breath over the past four years. He has smoked a pack of cigarettes every day for the past 30 years. He first noticed the shortness of breath, that it was limited to only physical activity, but over the past few months, he even becomes short of breath at rest too. He does use an inhaler and often requires nightly oxygen. He has worked as a roofer for most of his life. His physical exam is notable for diminished air entering the left upper lobe. He brings the report from a lung biopsy done a few weeks ago by a different doctor that states he had golden brown fusiform rods that resembled dumbbells within his lungs. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, hemochromatosis, B, iron and intoxication, C, asbestosis, or D, silicosis? So when I look at this question, you always got to wonder, why do they mention certain things? And the big thing that jumps out at me is roofer. You know what I mean? Like, who cares? You worked on roofs. So if I'm taking... A board question, they start giving all this information about their occupation, what they did. You know, they're kind of weaving their way into occupational lung diseases. You know, it's going to be incorporated there somehow. So let's take a step back. When do I think about occupational lung diseases? The broader topic are interstitial lung diseases. And I got to tell you, Pranay, we could have a separate podcast on interstitial lung diseases, but I put them in two broad categories occupational and non-occupational. And when I think about occupational lung diseases, I put them in two subcategories, those from an organic etiology and those from a non-organic or inorganic etiology. Organic etiology, occupational lung disease, the classic example is hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And the take-home message is don't ever own a bird. Don't own a cockletail. <laughs> Nothing good ever happens when you own a cockletail. But when we talk about these inorganic occupational lung diseases. Well, let me go classic USMLE examples, asbestosis, silicosis, co-workers pneumoconiosis, beryliosis. And when you need those, well, it's all about the buzzwords, right? So when we're talking about silicosis, which is one of the choices over there, I mean, Pranay, do you remember? Because you're not far off from being a student. I mean, <laughs> what, what, what are the occupations that people with silicosis get? Yeah, it's, a, you know, the type of people that work as like sandblasters and things to do with sand, basically. Dude, dude Pranay, you stepped it up, dude. I was kind of worried after the asthma comments, dude. But, <laughs> you know, so yes, dude, <laughs> you're going to be in glass making and sandblasting. That's going to be silicosis. And, you know, when in the vignette, they said something about like the upper lobes, I think, right? Yeah. Oh, the left upper lobe. So I got to tell you, I'm going to switch the question on you. You have someone with documented silicosis who comes in with cough and left upper lobe lesion. What are you worried about? Uh, TB or... Uh, no, stop right there. You're right. Okay. You got it, dude. So people with silicosis are 
totally, totally uh, predisposed to getting tuberculosis. You got to worry about that. You got to do like we do annual PPDs or annual quantifiron golds in these individuals. So you got to worry about that, right? And when we talk about buzzwords for the board exams, you know, when you shoot a chest X-ray with someone with silicosis, buzzword is always eggshell hyalur calcifications. You know what I mean? So just remember that board takers. Co-workers pneumoconiosis, I don't really see as much as that. I don't see many occupational lung disease anymore as, as a clinician because we know the dangers. We tell people, stay away from the asbestos. Don't live in a coal mine. You know what I mean? So we're good about not seeing these things. But if it was going to be co-workers pneumoconiosis, what jumps to mind? For board exams, it's got to be syndromes. Pranay, because I'm going to pick on you, the only one here. What syndrome jumps to mind when you think of pneumoconiosis in the lung? There's one syndrome uh, that jumps to mind. Uh, Kaplan syndrome. Yeah, Kaplan with a, with a what? C. With Kaplan with a C. Yeah. So that's going to be history of uh, pneumoconioses. You're going to have nodules in the lungs, and you're going to be serologically positive for rheumatoid arthritis, RF factor. So think about Kaplan syndrome, which I never really see, but hey, it's always asked on board exam. So beryliosis, who's going to get that? Well, if you're in fluorescent light bulbs and aerospace, you know, beryliosis is a little unique because of the fact that when you get the infection or the inflammation from beryllium, you develop granulomas in the lung. You get these non-caseating granulomas in the lung when you get beryllium exposure. And that's why, Pranay, beryliosis mimics what other interstitial lung disease? You know, I would guess sarcoidosis. You got to go sarcoid. Off, uh, the granulomas. There you go. That's what I go. I'm like, I'm like giving you like the alley-oop right there. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So when we talk, <laughs> so, so when I look at the other two choices there, hemochromatosis and iron intoxication, well, hemochromatosis has two main broad categories, right? One is you got to think of primary hemochromatosis. Many people call that bronzing diabetes. You're going to have genetic mutations that make you predisposed to it. If I were going to write a question for the board exams, you got to make the patient a cirrhotic. If I was going to write a question for the board exams, I would combine uh, the pathology with the physiology. Now, let's say a patient comes in with hemochromatosis, you biopsy the liver. If you want to diagnose hemochromatosis, what is my favorite stain of the liver, Pranay? Prussian blue. Prussian blue. That's how we do the boards. That's what they're going to ask you, you know? And then, of course, there's acquired hemochromatosis. When we talk about people who get constant, you know, infusions of packed red blood cells with that huge iron load. And I'm just not seeing that here in this smoker who works on the roof. And uh, I, I just don't see where iron intoxication comes from there. Now, I do like the last sentence. So he, they saw something in the lung, they did a biopsy, and um, they saw some fusiform rods resembling dumbbells. We call those ferruginous bodies. Another word for ferruginous bodies is asbestos bodies. So I think that the test taker could actually incorporate the pathology and make the diagnosis. The test taker could use clinical medicine, you know what I mean, and say you're a roofer and say asbestosis. Now. What worries me here in this question is that our 62-year-old dude, he, he enjoys smoking. And yeah. so, uh, Pranay, what, what worries you that this dude's going to get because he's got some asbestos and um, he enjoys smoking? I have cancer. Dude, and you know it's synergistic, right? Yeah. When you have the asbestos yeah. exposure or asbestosis and also uh, uh, smoking. So I'm really worried about that. So when I hear about this upper lobe mass, I would have wrote the question to say, maybe that was cancer. You're just giving me the biopsy results that, hey, it's asbestosis. Yeah. So, but you could really go for the cancer diagnosis there, you know? What else is going to be a, a great board pearl over here? 
who can tell me out in podcasting land what cancer is highly, highly, highly associated with asbestos exposure? Pranay, do you want to take this one for the team? Because you're the only team member on the other side. Yeah, I can definitely take it for the team. Um, I, I believe it's a little bit of a trick question, right? Because everyone wants to say mesothelioma, but isn't the most common cancer that occurs within these patients still like a, you know, bronchogenic carcinoma or something along those lines? No, and you're right. And, and, and you know what? And but I said highly associated, so associated, it has to be mesothelioma. Yeah. Exactly. But you're right. I, it is a trick question. And that's how boards do it, right? It's yeah. on the wording. So if I did say uh, most common, it's got to be what? Bronchogenic, which is all the combinations of squamous, nano, and yeah. small. But yeah, mesothelioma. And I got to tell you, Pranay, you don't want mesothelioma. It's messed up. Nope. <laughs> it, it affects all the peritoneal surfaces, the peritoneum, the tunica vaginalis, and of course, the pleura. And it's a very, we don't have many good treatments for it. It's surgery, it's hospice. So this is no good. So, you know, I kind of worked this all together. And you you kind of set me up for an easy one there. You're not like putting me on my spot or anything. So the answer has got to be what? It's got to be C. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of a, a baby question, but I did just want to hear you talk about all of these diseases. So I think I accomplished my goal there. All right, let's do number three. Okay, number three. So we have a 70-year-old man who presents to the emergency department for an evaluation for a shortness of breath, non-productive cough, and left-sided pleuritic chest pain. He has a history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and COPD. He reports a 30-pack year smoking history, but quit two years ago. Uh, his Vital signs are uh, within normal limits, and his, but his temperature is 100.6 degrees Fahrenheit. So his chest x-ray shows a moderate left-sided pleural effusion. A diagnostic thoracentesis is done, and it shows a pleural fluid with a total protein of 5.4 grams per deciliter and an LDH of 360 units per liter. His serum total protein is 6.1 grams per deciliter and his serum LDH is 140 units per liter. So which of the following is the most likely etiology of this patient's pleural effusion? Is it A, tuberculosis, B, nephrotic syndrome, C, congestive heart failure, or D, cirrhosis? Cool. So this is a, this is a bad question first off, but uh, let's, let's kind of point out, because everyone always asks what textbooks or review books or what books should I buy for board exams or for practice, you know, and I got to tell you, I wouldn't buy this question, you know? <laughs> so why do I know it's going to be bad is because the first, one of the senses says chest x-ray shows a moderate left-sided pleural fusion. Pranay, can you diagnose a pleural fusion? Can you see fluid 100% accuracy only on a chest x-ray? No. <laughs> no. So I got to tell you, I don't know why you gave me this question right there. So let's, let's, how would I correct the question? I think the, the, the key teaching point is, is that on a chest x-ray, you only can do one thing, describe. There is a density. And when you see that density, your, your differential based upon the history, based upon the physical exam will be, it could be a consolidation. It could be fluid, but you don't really know. So of course, a better question is, once you see that density and you want to know it's going to be a fusion, what tests can you order to confirm that this density on a chest X-ray is a pleural fusion? And Pranay, because you're there, what, what are some things that a medical student should know and can do to confirm that a abnormality, a density on a chest x-ray 
is an effusion or lot? What can you order clinically? I mean, if you could do a, a different imaging modality, maybe like ultrasound, see if the fluid is actually present on the, in that patient's pleural cavity. Yeah. And I would say there are three tests that come to mind. In the olden days, you know, you could do what's called a lateral decubitus film, meaning that you make the patient lay on their side and you see if this density kind of layers out. You know what I mean? If it's greater than a one centimeter layering on lateral decubitus, boom, it's an effusion. But let me ask you this, Pernay. Is it possible to have a pleural fusion, do a lateral decubitus film, and there's no layering? I would think so. You know, it could be loculated. It could be stuck in different parts of the lung. So I love that L word. Dude, I'm down with you, buddy. It's loculated. So correct. Then you could do maybe a CT, but you know, CT is usually more helpful after you drain the fluid. Because when you get a CT, sure, you'll definitely know it's a fluid. You know what I mean? But once there's an underlying mass or cavitary lesion or something, you won't see it. So sometimes the CT is more helpful after you drain the fluid, but you can do it. But I like what you, you ended on, because if you were to ask me, what's my jam? My jam is the ultrasound. And that is a 20,000 star high yield uh, knowledge for the boards is learning some basic images on ultrasound because, you know, boards are getting bored. They already <laughs> put x-rays and CTs. You know what I mean? The thing is ultrasound. And you know what, Pernay, me kind of self-advertised that on my website, beyondthepearls.net, I actually did a, a three-hour review course on ultrasound. So to everyone who's listening, go to my website, beyondthepearls.net, and listen to my, uh, my ultrasound review course. It, it's pretty awesome, dude. So I didn't like that question because first off, it gives the wrong impression to the med student because it really makes a difference now because you know, and I know step one is what pass or fail. Yeah. So it's all yeah. about being a stickler about step two, the clinical stuff. So I would say, I, I understand where it's coming from, but you can't diagnose a pleural fusion just based upon that chest X-ray. So you get an effusion, you know, you, you confirmed it and uh, you do a thoracentesis. I love it on the board exams the take home messages. Anytime you see fluid anywhere in the body, what should you do? Tap it. Drain it. You, yeah. You got it. Yeah. Tap that. And then uh, when you tap a pleural fusion, you're going to put them in two broad categories. Is it a transudate or is it an exudate? And you know where I'm going with this. Everyone who's listening, you know whose criteria I'm going to say, right? Just say it. Lights criteria. There's three lights criteria and total LDH in the effusion. And you need to have all three lights criteria be negative to be a transudate but only one of light's criteria to be positive, to be an exudate. Now, Pranay, I'm going to give you a question that you're not going to like me. Light's criteria for transudates is very what? Sensitive or specific? You know, I do not know the answer to that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. The yeah. reason why I asked is because of this, everyone, because you know what's going to be high yield for the boards. Biostatistics. I hate biostatistics. <laughs> That's why I always kind of throw it out there. But the answer is it's very specific. Why? Because no one per se really dies for a transudate. So you got to have all three be negative to be a transudate. But only one has to be positive to be an exudate. So it's got to be very what? Sensitive. Yes. And why is that? Because what are the two most common causes of an exudative pleurofusion? You know, my best guess would be maybe a pneumonia and uh, some sort of, you know, cancer. Correct. And can you die from infections and cancer, Pernay? 
Yes. <laughs> yes. And so you don't want to miss it. So it's very, very sensitive. So you gave me some protein values, LDH values. Like, are you really going to make me take out my calculator on this podcast and make me calculate it out? Just joking. You don't have to, but you know, maybe no. on the test, you might have to. <laughs> no, with that LDH being 360, I know this is going to be a lot. It's going to be an X a day. So the thing I didn't like about this question also was if you really want to diagnose Let's see where it's going. Plural TB, right? That's the jam. Plural TB. Number one is an exudate. But what did you need to give me on this question to make it more realistic? You need to give me the cell differential of the plural yeah. fluid. And, and I, you're just not giving it to me here, man. It's like, you know, <laughs> because what would be the predominant cell type if it was going to be plural TB? Any guesses? You know, I'm not sure. Lymphocytes, maybe? Lymphocytes. It's always going to be lymphocytes. And a lymphocytic exudate is going to have two main differentials. Is it cancer? Yeah. Or is it plural TB? And of course, you'd guess it's by the history and physical. And that's why I probably want to drain the, the fluid first, because maybe there's a huge capillary lesion there mm-hmm. that we don't see. And when we talk about plural TB, what are some specific things we get from the plural fluid? adenosine deaminase. Usually it's helpful when it's elevated. Maybe we can uh, do an AFB on the pleural fluid. We could do a smear, a stain, and a culture, but usually they're not positive. Some people get a mycobacterium TB PCR there. So all these things you could do. And the gold standard diagnosis of pleural TB is always biopsy, always biopsy the gold standard if you can't just grow it itself and, and, and keep it simple. And when we talk about pleural TB, how do we treat it? Just like regular TB, do four drugs for two months and two drugs for four months. And, you know, but when I'm looking at these answer choices over here, I would say this is test taking skills. Let's say this question, poorly written question, comes and is, you know, you only have a couple seconds left on your timer. I would just pick tuberculosis, say, because it's the only one that's a lot. An exudate. Exudate. I know. And that's testing is because the one that stands out like a sore thumb has got to be the right one. So it's got to be A. So I think this was a great question talking about plural TB. And I gave you many pearls about how to work it up when it's suspected. Know your lights criteria, very high yield for the board exams. Great. Moving on to question number four. So we have a 65-year-old woman who presents to the clinic with complaints of fatigue and a cough. The patient states that she has also lost more than 10 kilograms of weight over the past three months. She also reports coughing up some blood. On physical examination, there's decreased chest expansion on the right side. A chest x-ray reveals an irregular mass of an increased attenuation in the right upper lobe. And a biopsy is positive for a mutation in the epidermal growth factor receptor. Which of the following is the likely diagnosis? Is it A, a non-mucinous adenocarcinoma? B, keratinizing squamous cell carcinoma, C, a mucinous adenocarcinoma, or D, a small cell carcinoma? When I look at this question, I think it's important to realize when I look at the answer choices that these are answer choices that a pathologist would say. These are not the answer choices that a clinician would say. When we think about lung cancer, and I see, I mean, it obviously is a lung cancer question. Why? A 65-year-old, you know, is a little bit on the older side. And when you have an older person that comes in with cough and weight loss, I mean, cancer has got to be somewhere there. And one thing I noticed about this vignette, there's no history of what? Smoking. And so when there's no history of smoking, can non-smokers get lung cancer? Yes, trust me. And there's one, you know, type of the main lung cancers out there that kind of gets niched towards the non-smokers, and that's adeno. That's adenocarcinoma. 
So already you're kind of like pushing me that way. And then when I look at the biopsy, well, you're already giving me these epidermal growth factors, the answer. When you're giving me those, it's a memorizing question. Do you know what cancers are associated with these mutations or not? So not really a big fan of memorizing, but you got to do it on board exams. Yeah. But the answer choices, you know, I look at choices A and choices C. We as clinicians don't call it mucinous or non-mucinous. I, I don't know. I just see a mass and I work it up and I, and I stage it, you know, but this is what the pathologist sees. So when we talk about staging of lung cancer, always want to stage it to the highest stage because when you want to go for cure, the only cure for lung cancer is surgical resections. You want to be one of these lower stages. So when we talk about clinical staging, of course, it's getting the tissue. It's doing things like a a PET CT scan, looking for metastasis, getting an MRI of the brain, looking for the brain and seeing what stage it's going to be. What adds to that staging is the pathological staging. There's certain features of these tumors will pertain a worse prognosis. And definitely when we talk about adenocarcinomas of the lung, that's a super hot topic because there's many gene-targeted therapies that we have for adenocarcinoma. So I think it's very timely in those regards. Before I just jump into the, the answer choice, so number one, how do we categorize lung cancers? When I'm here teaching my pulmonary critical care fellows, we usually say there's small cell and there's non-small cell. But I'm sure many of your listeners and my listeners they read their review books and they always say lung cancers are put in central and peripheral. And that's cool. You could say that too. I have no problem with that. And that's the way I'll do it for this podcast. So when I think about central primary lung cancers, of course, the two that always jump to mind are going to be squamous and small cell. So when I think about squamous cell carcinoma, highly associated with smoking, very aggressive. And Pernay, what perineoplastic syndrome is highly associated with squamous cell carcinoma? Oh, is it uh, uh, hypercalcemia? The Very good. So they come related. in, boom, and you get like that high calcium. You got to pick. You got to pick that squamous cell carcinoma. Yeah. And also, if you do squamous cell carcinoma, um, if you do a biopsy, which they will on step one, this is a classic. What do we see on biopsy? My favorite keyword, which is keratinization, keratin pearls. When we think about small cell, the neurocrest cells. And when we think about small cell carcinoma, always think about these perineoplastic syndromes, Eaton Lambert, SIADH. And when we think about small cell carcinoma, any centrally located tumor can predispose you to something called SVC syndrome, superior vena cava syndrome. And for all extensive purposes, we do not use classic staging for small cell carcinoma. We don't use TMN, tumor nose metastasis. It's so aggressive. We call it limited or diffuse. And for all extensive purposes, there really isn't no surgical resection for small cell unless it's really causing some symptoms over there. So those are very important. And remember for board exam takers, which is everyone listening, small cell carcinoma was the artist formerly known as, Pranay, what do we used to call small cell carcinoma? I'm actually not sure. I always knew it as small cell. <laughs> well, I'm, maybe I'm dating how old I am, I'm, you know, but it used to be called oat cell carcinoma. Oh, so yeah, that's I'm not the familiar. Old <laughs> I'm old. When you look under the microscope and you see these neurosecretory granules, they call those what? Oat cells. Okay. So now let's look over here. So, it's, uh, you know, I'm going to take off squamous because, you know, the biopsy didn't show anything that said keratinizing, you know, and it's a non smoker. You're going to take off small because she's still alive, not to be mean, you know, and you didn't see any classic findings of small cell carcinoma there. 
And in a non-smoker, what would you say? It would be some kind of adenome. We talked about that, right? So that's going to be A and C. And the only way to pick which one it's going to be is have to memorize. I'm sorry, everyone. There is memorizing. And non-mucinous adenocarcinoma is associated with having a positive mutation for epidermal growth factor receptor. So you need that piece of information to kind of connect those dots over there. So the answer here is going to be A is an apple. Yes. Perfect. Thanks for that great review of lung cancers too. Oh, thanks, dude. Appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> so moving on to question five, um, we have a 58-year-old man who's presenting to his physician with complaints of left arm pain, along with weakness in his left hand for the past four weeks. He denies any trauma. His medical history is notable for COPD and hypertension. He has smoked one pack of cigarettes per day for the past 25 years. He also reports a recent loss of 15 pounds. His physical exam reveals paresthesias on the medial side of the left hand and forearm, as well as decreased left grip strength. On the left side of his face, you also notice that it is more drier, and his left pupil is smaller than the right side, and there's a slight droop in his left eyelid. So which of the following is the cause of his facial flushing and dry skin? Is it A, compression of the vagus nerve on the left side? B, serotonin hypersecretion from a carcinoid tumor? C, irritation of the paravertebral sympathetic ganglion and the stellate ganglion, or D, decreased venous return from the left subclavian vein by external compression. You know, <laughs> and I see you laughing over there because, you know, this is like way too easy for everyone listening on this podcast. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think that it's good that you put it there because when I remember when I was taking boards, you kind of need this to take a deep breath. Like, oh, I do know something, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> so, I mean, what you're describing over here is the classic findings of a Horner syndrome, you know? And I think everyone, probably the young med students know this better than I do. It's it's ptosis, meiosis, and hydrosis, right? That's going to be the, the, the classic Horner syndrome. And when you have ptosis in itself, it's a very broad differential, right? I mean, the first thing, the most common cause, I love, Pranay, I'm going to tell you, I'm, I love putting you on the spot. It's my favorite thing. What is the most, the trick question, what is the most common cause of ptosis in the entire world? You know, uh, idiopathic cause. <laughs> I, don't know. I love you. I love you. It's just getting old. Uh, okay. Old age, you know, I mean, you all get droopy eyes and you get yeah. old. So that's the first thing you think about, right? And, you know, so I wouldn't put, you know, pancos tumor very high on my differential right off the bat, yeah. you know what I mean? Because it's a rare cause of it, but we always kind of associate that with it, you know? And one of the interesting things, they always like bites from insects and reptiles on the board exams. Do you know, bite from what snake gives you ptosis? What snake? Yeah. Do you oh, like that? I'm not sure. And I'm, and, uh, and I'm gonna give you a hint. I'm a basketball dude. Oh, uh, wait. Oh, the black mamba. Yeah. The black mamba, dude. <laughs> I was about to say Kobe. I was like, wait, that's not a snake. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, for those not listening, I'm a huge basketball fan. So, and, and I just, number one player of all time, Michael Jordan, but, um, Kobe's up there with awesome. me. You know what I mean? Yeah. I couldn't resist to bring up a little black mamba when we talk about the doses, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And so when I hear about this, you know, it, uh, I see where we're going. We want to start talking about lung tumors and talking about when you get this Horner syndrome. And of course, the classic uh, finding is going to be a superior sulcus mass, a superior sulcus tumor. And, you know, we describe that as a pancos tumor. And pancos was actually initially described by a radiologist who said that's going to be a pancos tumor. Many people associate the superior sulcus tumor as adenocarcinoma, but it doesn't have to be. 
It could be squamous. It could be adeno. It's just looking at the mass in that area up here. And when you have that superior sulcus tumor, not only can you get the classic findings of a lung cancer, which, of course, cough, depending on where it is, of course, maybe hemoptysis. But remember, you can get brachial nerve involvement over here. So it's not surprising if you have a pancos tumor on the right that you can get numbness and tingling of the right hand. Of course, if you get involvement of the paravertebral sympathetic ganglion, you can definitely get that Horner syndrome. And that's something to think about. And of course, if I saw somebody came in there with those findings, a good history, a good physical exam, but got to get that chest x-ray. If you think it's going to be in a lung chest x-ray, someone comes in with a chronic cough, chest x-ray, because you don't want to miss catastrophic things like in lung cancer. Based on the findings on the physical exam, you're kind of picked into picking C. I'm looking at choice B over here. Now, I have carcinoid tumor. You know, carcinoid tumors are neurosecretory tumors. They belong to that squam that small cell carcinoma family over there. And, you know, when we talk about carcinoid tumors, very high yield for the board exams, that most carcinoid tumors are kind of like in the ilium, in the GI tract. They could be anywhere in the body. They could be endobronchial when you talk about the lung itself. And a very common question on the boards is identifying this when they have carcinoid syndrome. And when we talk about carcinoid syndrome, we're talking about these tumors release lots and lots and lots of serotonin. And you can definitely get that flushing of the skin when you have that. And when you have serotonin syndrome, you definitely get a deficiency in what amino acid? Uh, is it uh, tryptophan? It's see, me and you, yeah. we got a thing going together, buddy. <laughs> because, and if you have tryptophan, tryptophan is important to make what? Niacin. Yeah. And if you have a serotonin syndrome and you don't, and you had, you would use up all the tryptophan, you had no niacin, then you get what disease for the boards? Pellagra. Dude, they Greedy. love pellagra for the boards. And you know, <laughs> let me quote a classic board review book. When you think about pellagra, what are those D's? Diarrhea, dermatitis, dementia, death. So you always kind of want to worry about those on the board exams. And, you know, this is not going to be a, D, a decreased venous return. We're not talking about an SVC syndrome or anything like that. So I think we're kind of bullied into picking C over here. And since we just talked about lung cancer earlier, I'm going to let this one go with my quick answer over there, which wasn't that quick because <laughs> I, I, I'm feeling good things about the, the next three before we end this podcast. So what do we got? Yeah. So spot on with that answer choice. Uh, C was correct. So. Moving on to question six, we have a 65-year-old man with a 40-pack-year smoking history. He comes in with worsening shortness of breath on exertion. His pulmonary function tests confirm the diagnosis of COPD. Compared to a person without COPD, which of the following changes in lung volumes and capacity should be expected? So this, these answer choices might not be great for a podcast format, but we have A, Increased total lung capacity, increased functional residual capacity, and increased residual volume. B, increased TLC, increased FRC, decreased RV. C, increased TLC, decreased FRC, decreased RV. Or D, everything is decreased, TLC, yeah. FRC, and RV. So, Dr. Uh, Raj, can you walk us through that one? Sure. Now, you know, I'll... I think that the, what you're asking me in so many words is, do I understand pulmonary function test? And I got to tell you, for all the questions you're asking me here, this is going to be triple star high yield for the boards. PFTs are to the pulmonologist, just like the ECG is to the cardiologist. And when I do a pulmonary function test, I'm going to do it because the patient says, you know what? I'm short of breath. 
And when someone says they're short of breath, three things jump to mind. Number one, is it the heart? Number two, are they anemic? And number three, is it the lungs? And what do all those three things have in common is oxygen. The heart delivers it. The hemoglobin and the RBCs carry it. And the lungs actually bring it in. So I won't even get a PFT until I rule out the heart, until I rule out their anemic, and then I want to evaluate the lung. And when I get a PFT, a PFT is made up of three main things. Number one, spirometry, which is going to measure the flow of air on expiration. Two, the lung volumes. And of course, when you get a pulmonary function test in the lab, there's one volume, just kind of like a pain in the butt to get, and that's the residual volume. And why do you want to get that residual volume is because you need total lung capacity. And total lung capacity is very, very important when you want to rule in or rule out a restrictive lung disease. And the last part of a PFT is the DLCO, diffusion-limited carbon monoxide. Our gas is able to go through the alveoli, through the interstitium, and into the capillary. So those three things make up a PFT. And based on my results, I put them into two broad categories obstructive and restrictive. And let's just focus on one of these because Dan Pernay, we're like going overtime on this uh, podcast (laughs) over here. So for obstructive lung disease, what one PFT parameter defines a disease as obstructive? The ratio, the ratio of the FEV1 over the FBC. That ratio will be low. How low? Less than 70% of predicted. And then People always ask, why is the ratio low? Because in obstructive lung diseases like asthma, like COPD, like bronchiectasis, that the FEV1 is much, much, much more effective than the FBC. So when you do the mathematics of a super low FEV1 versus a kind of low FBC, the ratio will be low. And when we talk about the classic example of obstructive lung disease, it's COPD, which is divided into historically emphysema and chronic bronchitis. When we think about emphysema and chronic bronchitis, both of them will have a low ratio, but it truly is the DLCO, diffusion-limited carbon monoxide, which tends to be low in emphysema and relatively normal and spared in chronic bronchitis. Why? Chronic bronchitis is a proximal lung disease, and we don't do gas exchange in our bronchi. It happens in the alveoli. So DLCO tends to be normal in chronic bronchitis. When we talk about obstructive lung disease, I already said the obstruction is where? On expiration. That's why when you look at the spirometry, you look at a flow volume loop, you can see number one, that it takes a long, long time to breathe out all that air because the obstruction is on blowing out. And even at the end of a breath, they still can't blow out all the air. They're still trapping some, they're retaining some. They call that air trapping. When that air gets trapped in the lung, you get a very, very high residual volume. And remember, back to step one, is that what is the definition of a capacity? Two or more volumes added together. So when we talk about FRC, that is going to be our expiratory reserve volume plus residual volume. When we talk about TLC, that's your vital capacity plus what? Residual volume. So when your residual volume is high, anything that contains residual volume is also going to be high. So with that being said, when I look at your answer choices, you're making it too easy. Patient has COPD, three of the choices have a decreased residual volume and only one has to be elevated. So, you know, this is the one when you're taking the boards, what do you say? Thank you. Thank you, God, for helping me out. So the only answer has to be A. 
has it increased TLC. Now, TLC in itself doesn't define a disease as destructive. Some athletes have a, a big total lung capacity, like a Michael Jordan, like a Kobe Bryant. But when I keep on looking down and it says increased residual volume, well, that's where I know that the patient's going to be what? Air trapping. So the answer here is going to be what? A. A is an apple. Perfect. So moving on to question seven. Yep. So we have a 40-year-old patient who presents with shortness of breath and has the following values on examination. P big A O2 of 100 millimeters per mercury, a P little A O2 of 78, a PVO2 of 40, and a DLCO of normal. So this patient's condition does not <laughs> improve with oxygen. Which of the following is the most likely cause of this patient's hypoxemia? And this is one of these other kind of definitional ones for you, Dr. Raj, one of these easy ones, hopefully. So <laughs> the answer choices are as following. A, a diffusion problem resulting from lung fibrosis. B, alveolar dead space. C, a right-to-left shunt due to an uh, arterial venous malformation. Or D, anemia. Nice. So, you know, this is the one where, I mean, I wish this was live and I had like a whiteboard in front of me because <laughs> this, is a, this is a really good question. You know, I think the concepts here are going to be talking about the AA gradient, exactly. the alveolar arterial gradient. And what is the broader topic here? The broader topic is going to be what are the causes of being hypoxic? And when we talk about the causes of being hypoxic, there are five main causes. Is it going to be a VQ mismatch, which is by default the most common cause of being hypoxic? VQ stands for ventilation over perfusion. And that's going to be things like a pulmonary embolism, COPD, asthma, pneumonia, atelectasis, the most common cause. And number two is going to be hypoventilating. And hypoventilating can be secondary to neuromuscular diseases such as myasthenia gravis, Eaton-Lambert, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, all of those things will give you, will cause you to hypoventilate. Now, another cause of hypoventilating on the boards is always going to be drugs. Are you a big fan of morphine? Do you love Jack Daniels? Are you popping the Xanax? Give me some phenobarbital. These are going to be the classic things that we talk about. The next cause is going to be shunting. And when we talk about shunting, it gets a little confusing here because there are two types of shunts. One is going to be uh, what we call physiological shunting, which goes back to VQ mismatch. Because in VQ mismatch, there's what's called dead space physiology versus shunt-like physiology. And these are just descriptive terms. So, for example, to have dead space-like physiology, that means there's no problem with ventilation, but there's a problem with the perfusion of blood to the alveoli, such as the pulmonary embolism. When you have shunt-like physiology, that's like atelectasis, where you have problems with getting the air into the alveoli, but the blood flow is perfect. So when I talk about anatomical shunting, anatomical shunting literally means there's an abnormal connection, anatomically an abnormal connection. And there are two types of anatomical shunts that we think about for the USMLE. Number one is going to be intracardiac shunting, and number two is going to be intrapulmonary shunting. On the boards, they're really focused on intracardiac. Intrapulmonary shunting can be things like an AV malformation in the lungs, or it could be someone who has a hepatal pulmonary syndrome. Those are going to be things when we talk about pulmonary shunting, anatomical pulmonary shunt. Anatomical cardiac shunt, the classic ones that make you hypoxic, are always the shunts that go from right 
to left. So you're going to take this blood that's not oxygenated and you're going to dump them in the left side of the body. So when we talk about shunts that make you hypoxic, they're always going to be right to left shunts. And when we talk about right to left shunts, you know where I have to give for examples is those T's, right? Tetralogy of Fallot, truncus arteriosus, transposition of the great arteries, tricuspid atresia are always going to be those right to left shunts. And if you have a long-standing left to right shunt, you could get that reversal, and they call that an Isominger syndrome. And the last two of the five causes of hypoxia is going to be high altitude, people who go to Mount Kilimanjaro, who go to the Appalachians, or the last ones could be diffusion limited. Diffusion limited means it's kind of like VQ mismatch. Remember, V is ventilation, alveoli, Q is perfusion, capillary. Well, what about the interstitium? So no one's no one's acknowledging it. And that's what the fifth one is. It's going to be diffusion limited. So these are going to be a lot of these interstitial lung diseases. So to figure out what is the main cause of this, you need to ask yourself two questions. Is there going to be a normal or widening of the AA gradient? And two, do they respond to supplemental oxygen? So when you gave me this question, you know, I mean, I'm trying to summarize it in the podcast. <laughs> what I'm supposed to do is calculate the big A, which is the, uh, the alveolar oxygen. And then I will get the little A, which is going to be the capillary, the partial pressure of oxygen. And I subtract these values to see if there's a widening of normal the A gradient. And of course, when you do this, your A gradient always has to be corrected for your age. Mm-hmm. So when you get a value, then you have to take your age and you take your age divided by four plus four and you get a value and you compare that to what, what you calculated and you see if it's normal or widening. And of course, and people will ask me, what's a widening A gradient? Anything above 10, above 15 is going to be widened. But for the board exams, these values are already pre-calculated. So it's either going to be perfectly matched up or it's going to be pretty widened. And then when we say, how do you respond to supplemental oxygen? Well, literally you give oxygen and the oxygen saturation doesn't go up or you give oxygen and the partial pressure of arterial oxygen doesn't go up. So you're not responding to it. And that's weird. Almost everyone responds to supplemental oxygen. So you look for these pairings, A gradient, normal or widened, respond to supplemental oxygen or not. And all these concepts are really the foundation of understanding Fick's law of diffusion. So if I can tell anyone listening to the podcast, what's a very high yield topic is understand fixed law of diffusion. Remember, there are structural properties of fixed law, such as surface area and thickness. There are physiological properties, such as pressure gradient. Things move from areas of high pressure to low pressure. And of course, solubility. And in this case, solubility of gases. So when I look at this and I look at the choices, well, A, lung fibrosis. If you had lung fibrosis, well, there should be a widening of the gradient and they definitely should respond to supplemental oxygen and the DLCO should be abnormal. So it doesn't fit that pattern. It's going to be wrong. Alveolar dead space. Well, we talked about that under VQ mismatch. If it's a VQ mismatch, well, the DLCO has to be off. It should have a widening of the A gradient, but they definitely should respond to supplemental oxygen. You know, and that doesn't meet this over here. Anemia has nothing to do with this. <laughs> so, you know, anemia is just kind of like you're anemic. You just whatever, you know, so it doesn't really affect anything about the A gradient or diffusion. And so by default, the answer is going to be that right to left shunt. You chose an AB malformation, which is an intrapulmonary shunt. And what do we say is going to be the pattern? They will have a widening of the A gradient. 
but they don't fully respond to supplemental oxygen and the DLCO would be normal. So just going through that thought process, the answer is going to be C. And so that was a hard one to go over. And I would say that, I'm going to say it again. If you want to get more details about the A gradient, you want me to calculate it out and do the whole spiel, check me out on beyondthepearls.net, my own website with videos up the wazoo, just to plug it in one more time. All right. That was a tough one. Yeah, that was good. And I, I will support your plug. I did watch some of your videos the other day. And, oh, you did? You know, they're, they're top tier. I really did enjoy them. Thank very you. Reviews, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. So moving on to our last question, question number eight. We have a 20-year-old college student who's brought into the emergency department with shortness of breath. Her blood pressure is 110 over 75, pulse of 89, oxygen saturation of 94%, and her respiratory rate is 35. She's had similar episodes in the past during major academic exams while in school. Which of the following changes in the oxyhemoglobin disassociation curve is most likely seen in this patient? Is it A, right shift, B, left shift, C, an upshift, or D, a downshift? Now, this is something you probably never see when you talk to a patient or think about, but I do think the boards like to talk about this curve a lot. They do. They do. They do. So let me go about what are the teaching points here. So when we talk about the broader topic as a USMLE instructor, I think about total oxygen content. Now, total oxygen content is made of three things. Two of them are measurable. Number one is going to be the amount of oxygen bound to the hemoglobin. Number two is called the dissolved oxygen, otherwise known as the partial pressure of arterial oxygen. And these two can be measured. The third part of total oxygen content is more of a concept. And that's what we're talking about here, the oxygen dissociation curve. And when we talk about this curve, and you can imagine it, there's the y-axis, which is going to give the O2 saturation. There's the x-axis, which is going to give you the partial pressure of arterial oxygen. And you have a curve and it tells you what you're based upon what your partial pressure of arterial oxygen is, how much of that oxygen will be bound to the hemoglobin. So when we see this curve, we always say shift to the right or shift to the left. When you want to shift the curve to the right, you want to give the oxygen to the tissue. The tissues need oxygen. When you shift to the left, the oxygen stays bound really tight to the hemoglobin. So what will shift things to the right? You know, I'm not really a huge fan of mnemonics and all I'm memorizing, but I'll give you one. I'll give you one. Dr. Raj always says you tap to the right. What does tap stand for? T for temperature. So what is the temperature going to be? High when you have fevers. And what's my clinical correlate? Well, Emma, hey, I'm an ICU doctor. In the ICU, do people have fevers and sepsis? The answer is, yep. You want to shift a curve to the right to give oxygen to the starving tissues. And that's the big problem with sepsis. You can't utilize that oxygen. So it's good that we're shifting the curve to the right. A stands for being acidemic. And Pranay, I haven't asked you questions in a while. (laughs) What is my favorite metabolic acidosis associated with sepsis? Uh, Lactic acidosis. Exactly. You know, that's why we use lactic acid as a marker of sepsis, you know? And what a surprise, as the pH goes down, as you're more acidemic, you shift the curve to the right, to utilize more oxygen. P stands for phosphate. Some people call that 2,3-DPG or some people call it 2,3-B as in boy, PG. I don't care. You know, it just shifts the curve to the right. And what does it mean that anytime you're hypoxic from any etiology, your RBCs make lots of this protein. The more protein you have, the more you shift the curve, you know, to the right. But where does the party really begin on the board exams? It's not really going to the right. 
it's going to the left. That's where it starts, you know? And of course, the opposite takes place, the opposite of TAP. So it's going to be hypothermia. It's going to be alkalemia, having a high pH. It's going to be low levels of 2,3-DPG. And I want to tell you, I'm going to throw a couple of other ones out there. On the board exams, they love fetal hemoglobin. Fetal hemoglobin loves to shift a curve all the way to the left. On the board exam, they got to tell you, you got to, you got to study your skeletal muscle. No one likes skeletal muscle. In skeletal muscle, you have your red muscle, your white muscle. And you know what makes red muscle red? Myoglobin. And you know what myoglobin does? Shift a curve all the way to the left. And when we talk about two other things that are guaranteed left shifters on the boards, let me say the two words, carbon monoxide. There's no way you're going to escape the board exams without answering carbon monoxide for the boards. And then the last thing, which is my personal favorite, my little gift, since this is the last question for everyone out there, is my man, met hemoglobinemia. Met hemoglobinemia is high yield for the board exams because it integrates my favorite thing, biochemistry, with the physiology. That shifts the curve all the way to the left. And, you know, it says on your answer choices, shift up and shift down. You know, you really can shift the curve up and down. That's correct. And if you want to shift the curve up, you know what does that? polycythemia, because you're just making more what? Taxi cabs. What are they going to carry? Oxygen. Anytime you have polycythemia for the boards, start off your differential with my favorite hormone, which is erythropoietin. Is it a reactive polycythemia or is it something really nasty like polycythemia vera? Or could it be someone who has a tumor like renal cell carcinoma? Then if you shift the curve down, they got to be anemic. Anytime you're anemic on the board exams, look at that CBC. And you know my three favorite letters, MCV, mean corpuscle volume, to put your differential diagnosis. Is it a microcytic hyperchromic anemia? Is it a macrocytic uh, hyperchromic anemia? These are things they're going to ask you on the boards. So now that we went through this, I look at these choices. The thing that jumps out at me is that, wow, this 20-year-old is breathing 35 times per minute. I don't even think that's possible. You know, <laughs> how do you have time to blow out there? And if you are breathing that to Kipnik, you know, that pH is going to go up. That CO2 is going to go what? Down. Patient's going to have a respiratory alkalosis. And based upon my nice little talk over there, since you have your alkalemic, you're going to shift the curve which way? To the left. So the answer here has to be what? B is in boy. Before we end the podcast on my side, uh, Dr. Raj, you know, we covered a lot of material, but any last pearls you want to impart to medical students for, you know, step one specifically? Sure. The step one will always be near and dear to my heart. And I'll be the first to say that when I go back and think about some of the emotional times that I had to go through before becoming a doctor, step one is, is such a big thing. It's, you know, one of the biggest tests that we take since med school, since college. And, you know, it's okay to be emotional when you pass. And it's okay that you have to suffer a little bit to study for it because it really does feel great when you pass. And I can't even describe how it is. My tips is that don't wait for the last minute. Don't always do what you think because others study a certain way. You need to do the same thing. Studying is very individualized. And you know what type of study person you are. I think my biggest tip at this point is it's no secret. Step one is, is pass or fail. Step two is now going to be the new bar of scoring. So what are we are trying to do is incorporate so much clinical 
into uh, the basic science, which is kind of what a lot of medical school students want. You know, they just don't want to regurgitate enzymes and, and syndromes that we're never going to know. They really want to actually, you know, how is this going to affect patient care? So when you do questions, when you do a review, make sure they try to incorporate it into patient care because that's what really the theme is. And with that being said, you know what I'm going to say, Pranay. That's why my Beyond the Pearls book series published by Elsevier, that's why my podcast, that's why my, my video series is geared towards those people, those, those type of questions. By all means, it's not just that, it's always incorporating other aspects of it. But I would say making sure they're cynical, not procrastinating. And since I'm a sleep doctor, let me just end a note on this one and make sure you get good sleep also. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I agree. That part is very important, especially for me. So, you know, with that, thank you, Dr. Raj, for being on this podcast and we'll end it there. 